You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at the animated reconstruction of Doctor Who, The Faceless Ones. It's been a while since we've done an animated Doctor Who episode, and I'm pleased that we've got uh, a couple here in the near term to do. How? All right, let's uh, start with the synopsis. Bit of a long one, because it's a six-parter. The Doctor, Ben, Polly, and Jamie arrive on the runway at Gatwick Airport in 1966. It's just an ordinary day as London recovers from yesterday's war machine attacks. The travelers are forced to flee as first, a plane tries to land where they are, and second, a police officer wants to question them. They scatter, never to be a team again. Polly enters the hangar of Chameleon Tours and witnesses the murder of a police inspector. She is chased by the killer, but escapes, then rejoins the doctor and Jamie. The doctor insists they return to investigate. They find the body, but are observed by the killers. Polly who can identify the man who pulled the trigger, is quietly captured when they are heading to get official help. On their way to find help, the doctor and Jamie run afoul of customs and immigration because they don't have passports. When they do manage to talk to the airport commandant, it is as illegal immigration suspects, not helpful citizens trying to report a murder. They convince the Commandant to check out the hangar, but the body is gone, and Captain Blade, pilot and head of Chameleon Tours, let them check crates to search for a body, but to no avail. The Commandant takes the Doctor and Jamie back to be incarcerated, but they encounter Polly at the immigration desk. She claims her name is Michelle. She's from Zurich. She's never met them before, and she has the proper passport documentation to prove it. Elsewhere, we witness a faceless alien being transformed into a duplicate of an abducted human. The alien almost died because Earth's atmosphere is not suitable for them. This angle will play no further part in this story. Knowing they're going to be locked up, the Doctor and Jamie escape again, this time encountering Ben, who has avoided detection and immigrations, apparently. They fill him in, and he's put to work investigating the chameleon hangars. Polly is now working the desk at Chameleon Tours. The doctor trips her up when she reveals she knows more about the murder than she's pretending. Later, Captain Blade says she'll be sent back on the next flight for her failure. Police Inspector Crossland arrives at the airport, searching for his missing colleague, the murdered man, and also investigating Chameleon Tours over a missing persons report. Jamie, watching Polly in the Chameleon Tours kiosk, meets Samantha, who gives Polly the third degree about her missing brother. It seems he went missing on one of these chameleon tours to Rome, and their information about the tour doesn't check out. Jamie approaches her and says the doctor might be able to help. Ben, searching the hangar, finds Polly's body in a crate, and then is captured when he tries to raise the alarm. The doctor comes to his rescue, but Ben and Polly are gone. He finds the comatose body of Meadows, the flight controller, just before he is lured into a freezing trap which he escapes. Inspector Crossland seems like a real police detective. He is investigating Chameleon, and these strange intruders were claiming to have seen a murder in Chameleon Tours' hangar. He should talk to them. 
Unfortunately, they've been giving airport security a merry chase the whole time. Crossland just goes and finds Jamie like a pro. They ally, and he takes the doctor and Jamie back to the Commandant's office and makes him listen to them and let them investigate. Crossland goes to talk to Captain Blade and is taken prisoner. The baddies at Chameleon Tours recognize the doctor's superior intelligence as a threat, so they engineer more overly elaborate ways to kill him, all of which fail. Samantha, impatient and headstrong, decides to get to the bottom of the mystery and buys a ticket on the next Chameleon Tours flight. Jamie steals her ticket and takes her place on the flight, unbeknownst to the doctor. The Commandant has the RAF chase the flight, but the fighter is destroyed and the Chameleon Tours jet flies straight up into space to an awaiting space station. The passengers on the planes are being miniaturized. Jamie escapes that fate by hiding and not eating the food. He attempts to search the station, but meets Crossland, who is actually now the director, head of the aliens. Jamie is taken for processing. The doctor questions the duplicate meadows and discovers that by turning off the device on their wrists, the aliens will die and the duplicated human will recover. Under threat of death, Meadows tells all. Their race have lost their identities in an explosion on their homeworld and are stealing 50,000 young people to duplicate. They're almost done. Most of the captured humans are miniaturized and on the space station, awaiting the return to the planet. But the human bodies of the airport staff duplicates are hidden somewhere in the airport. He claims he doesn't know where. The search is on. The doctor and Nurse Pinto, a human who had been duplicated but now restored, go on the final Chameleon Tours flight, pretending to be duplicates. That ruse fails, and they are taken before the director, who orders them to be used for duplication. The doctor bluffs that they have the bodies at the airport, and they will deactivate the devices, killing the aliens currently holding him prisoner, if they don't negotiate a deal. This threat carries no weight to the director whose human body, like Jamie's, is stored on the space station and is at no risk. No deal. This doesn't set well with Captain Blade and the others whose human bodies are stored at the airport. The doctor tries to play up that divide. At the last moment, Samantha works out that the bodies are hidden in the car park, and one of them is revived, killing a chameleon back on the space station. Now, the vulnerable chameleons turn on the director, kill him, and make a deal with the doctor. They'll have to give up the bodies and go back to the way they were, Perhaps the doctor has a few ideas how to solve their identity problem. Back at the airports, it's congratulations and all smiles as the doctor and Jamie say goodbye to their companion for this adventure, Samantha, and all the other people who played an important part in this story, the Commandant and his staff and the police. As an afterthought, they go find Ben and Polly, only to say goodbye when they realize no time has elapsed since they first left Earth with the doctor. No time to rest for the Doctor and Jamie, though. The TARDIS has gone missing. So, Faceless Ones. Faceless Ones. What do you think? Well, every time we get one of these Troughton reanimated stories, I just feel enormously glad to have them back. So, whatever whatever um, comments or thoughts I have about it is <clears throat> tempered by the fact that it's just really good to see this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I got to say, I mean, I, I, this is a, perhaps a terrible indictment of current state of Doctor Who, but I was watching this and I was like, this isn't even a fantastic episode, but really enjoying this. I am, I am just, <laughs> the magic is there 
and even even animated the magic is there and and in a kind of incoherent story well i well i see i'm not sure i would agree necessarily well maybe we'd agree maybe we'll agree in slightly different ways to me this this there were elements of this that felt almost a bit like it could be a chibnall story um obviously the kind of pacing and some of the period stuff is very much not and maybe it's just because there were aeroplanes in spyfall i guess um but <laughs> there there did there did seem elements of it where i could almost imagine jodie whittaker being substituted in for um for pat troughton the criticisms that i have there i mean i i have to say i enjoyed it as a story i probably enjoyed it quite a bit more than i enjoyed the macro terror as a story and in particular i found it really interesting watching a, how they handled a story that was set in present day for what was the present day in that day more or less yeah and the re the the kind of criticisms i have about this are more about the animation which kind of feels like biting the hand that's feeding us but um <laughs> but the story itself like i say it, i i was so pleased to to have it and yeah, i rather enjoyed it i i definitely enjoyed it i did enjoy it a little bit less on the second go through uh, partially because on the first go through, I watched one a day for six days, and on the second go through, well, I watched six mostly back to back. That's how it should be watched. I mean that that was one of the reasons I found it so disappointing that Sharda was recreated yeah. as a single block. I think I think if you if you watch it in a way that is not how it was intended, you kind of miss out on the the rhythms of it and the fact that you know each episode does build up to its little climax and those things yeah. don't have the same impact if you're just sitting there watching it for two and a half hours oh yeah no i i do not like them cutting them i i, I don't know if, if you knew this but you know initially when they syndicated doctor who well okay initially they syndicated some doctor john pertwee's but that didn't go anywhere then they syndicated the tom bakers which were extremely popular and then when they came back and after Tom Baker had been so popular for many years, you know, they, they, they added in a second bunch that started up with uh, Romana. And then when that went well, then they decided to bring in the rest of the doctors. And then they offered those up in two packages, either in serial form or cut up into these awful movies. And, mm. you know, most places bought the movies and, you know, cause they would show them once a week instead of showing them, five days a week. And I do not, I mean, I, I enjoy them, but I do not like them. They are absolutely meant to be watched separately. Um, and, you know, even a day apart is not really good enough. And because there is one thing about this story that was painfully apparent on rewatch. You're supposed to have six weeks between episode one and episode six so that you can forget all the things that don't make any <laughs> sense you know, from from one episode to three or four more down the line. The fact that the aliens don't breathe our atmosphere and have to be acclimated and converted to a human form, which is quite apparent at the end of episode one, beginning of episode two, which is never mentioned again. And when all the humans go up to the space station, it's not a problem for them. 
Right. Right. There's, That's there's true. no atmosphere I, difference. I didn't you have don't... six weeks. I didn't have six weeks to not notice that. Yes, the human. Well, no, is that true? The humans would. Is it? Is it? Is it perfectly symmetrical in that sense? I don't know that it is, but there is no. Uh, you know, there's just no acknowledgement of of this being an issue. Yeah, ever I think again, you'd probably you'd probably be concerned that. On the on the other hand, there ha yes, there has to be some way in which the humans or miniaturized humans are kept alive up in the station. So, well, those I'm assuming are you know in some sort of a in stasis, so it doesn't matter. But it's it's you know Jamie and I. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfectly symmetrical. It could be something as simple as you know oxygen levels are too low for the aliens on earth and so they needed higher oxygen we can survive a higher oxygen atmosphere probably better than we can survive a lower oxygen atmosphere so i mean it, it could be but because it was a sort of a big deal at the beginning nothing comes of it at all there, there is no jamie gets off the plane and has struggles to breathe in a weird atmosphere you just gone <laughs> And presumably the, you know, the captured humans or the duplicated humans breathe Earth atmosphere normally because that's how they cure the guy who can't breathe. So if they're... what? All right, let, let's ask this question. What is the alien's plan? Uh, so they're, they're, they're taking people... <laughs> this is, these, these are the things that... that they're taking people, uh, young people, and they're flying them up to the spaceship they're pretending to fly them somewhere else but they fly them up to the spaceship miniaturize them copy their bodies no they're not even copying their bodies and i think that's part of it i don't think they're copying bodies i think they're taking the people onto the spaceship to take them back to their planet they haven't even replicated most of these people except for those that they need in ground operations so they're not invading the earth i think they're planning to go back and live on their planet Yes. In human form. Okay. So not only is Chameleon Tours not taking anybody to any of the other airports, and all of those airports have noticed, the British airport has never noticed that they're not bringing them back here out of 50,000 people. And who was getting off that plane when Polly got off the plane? <laughs> it's like if she's the only one they brought back. It just, it, it, it's just stuff like that. It was like, I'm not quite sure i get what the aliens are doing and so am, am i right in assuming well, that the, when they it, that depends where the chameleon tours are only taking people on tours from gatwick to other destinations didn't the other airport say that they never deliver any well maybe but what do they mean no, do they mean planes no never arrive gatwick, there no one travels from gatwick to rome no one gets off at rome okay um, but if, if they get off that at rome mean then that no means the plane lands rome. that means a plane lands at rome Yes. We didn't see that well, either. Yes. No, but I had assumed it would. Why 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 would well, they I mean, why would they, why would they think that the planes were landing in Rome if they were not actually landing in Rome? I mean, why would why would why would air traffic control in Gatwick think that planes were landing in Rome if they weren't? Well, but, okay, but but we watched one full flight, the one that Crossland well, was no. on. They went up, they left Gatwick, they went up into space. They came back down from space. They went right back to Gatwick. So I'm assuming they're doing the same thing in Rome and they're doing the same thing in 
or something. Pos- I don't know. Possibly, but they have four. <laughs> they have four planes. They had four planes at Gatwick. That was. Well, I, they have four, four planes. Full stop. I just think they they were kind of a little bit. You know, we we just sort of need to be doing this. We're not really thinking about the fact that there are fifty thousand missing people. That then there's only investigations for one. <laughs> Well, it just it seems it, to be it, it, it seems to be a fairly serious investigation. So I'm assuming it was they were investigating multiple disappearances. Possibly, yeah. The one that the one that we're aware of is is because of Sam Briggs coming down and stirring up trouble. But we don't know how many complaints the police have received. What we can tell is that they are taking it seriously. It, it is kind of hard to believe that that many people have gone missing, and. There isn't a comedian tours hasn't been rumbled a while ago, but anyway, it it doesn't really matter. Well, it it's just how quickly they're going missing. They're just I, I, this is not the best constructed threat we've ever had. And if you think about it, our our poor Captain Blade, they're all going back to the planet, right? If things had gone smoothly, they were all going to go back to the planet, right? But they're yeah, leaving yeah. all their bodies behind in a car park. At Gatwick on Earth, which presumably at the distance of however many light years, if somebody ever happened to find Jenkins sitting in the back seat of a car <laughs> and and they took that bracelet off, the guy would die all the way across space and time. It just it just yes, that wasn't point quite... that point was was that was the reason the doctor was able to turn them. Yeah, that's why it works for the doctors. That's why it works for us as a leveraging point for the doctor. But how does that work if that was their plan? Because there is no way, there is no way that if they leave this planet and go away, that somebody isn't going to see or wonder yes. about all those cars in that parking lot in the intervening, what, years? <laughs> it's like, it just, it, it just Yes, was... but the director was aware of that. The director didn't care, though. Exactly. <laughs> See, the, exactly. He didn't care, yeah. but the aliens weren't too bright. <laughs> they, they, were they were not too bright. That is that is certainly true. Despite the fact that we're as dumb as the animals on their planet. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was it was occasional things like that. But by and large, I, I really did enjoy it. I, I just, every once in a while, I would be hit by this. Wait, why aren't they doing this? I I I wondered a little bit at the beginning what when I hadn't when I was watching it through and unaware of what the faceless ones were I I couldn't I couldn't figure it out you know you're in episode 2 and you're still going well why why have they duplicated Polly's appearance and yet she has a different personality and identity that too. and what's what's the 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 reasoning behind that because they could at that point, what you're after is some clues as to exactly what's going on with them. Are they, are they robots? Um, are they duplicates? Could it, could it even be? Because, I mean, all, we don't know. All we're seeing is someone who looks like Polly, but someone who could be in, you know, some, it could be Polly's body with someone else's mind or mm-hmm. Polly possessed or, you know, there are all these different possibilities of all these different things that, could be done in Doctor Who. In fact, most of them have been done in Doctor Who, and you're wondering which of them is going on here. And so it felt a little bit like 
that needed to be a little simpler and more consistent, I suppose. So that would be my criticism of the, the plotting. As far as I can tell, Polly is the only one that they gave a new identity to. But that, everybody that, else. That, that could be that the Polly, the Polly person is pretending. I mean, any, everyone else is taking on, it's convenient for them to take on the identity of mm-hmm. whoever they have, yep. whoever's, whoever's appearance they have adopted. I mean, that's one of right. the huge advantages of what they're right. doing. Right, and they're getting that information because we're demonstrated that with Meadows when he is able to recite his accurate home address even when their files don't show it. So they're brain. So they've got Polly's brain. Irrespective of, of how they're doing what they're doing at that point, what you realize is that some some possessed or duplicate or substitute is it is in place of these people but they are using their identities and that's the key advantage that they've got and so the question you have when you see someone who looks like polly who's taken on polly's appearance but who isn't using their identity like that is what advantage have they gained there why why use Polly? well but the it's a pure disadvantage because the doctor recognizes her and and makes it more yes the doctor recognizes the explanation for why for why she has to adopt a different name and pretend to be someone else but the wider answer is that they are they are using the the human bodies the human appearance in order to overcome this issue with whatever it is to do with them not being able to breathe the atmosphere or the point is the point is that there is there is too much complexity to it there are there are there are too many diverse reasons so it's it's a neat it's a neat concept the 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 actual faceless ones are a great design but it it just could have been a little bit simpler i said i don't think it would have hurt if it had been a little more consistent it's interesting you should mention that it's it's too complex and I think I'll, I'll I'll go along with that. I'll go along with it because we see so many facets that don't tie up logically. It's it's a form of complexity that's that could have been simplified to be a little more logical. But it's interesting because the uh Ellis, one of the two writers, apparently had four prior Doctor Who scripts rejected, at least 3 of them because they were too complex. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> so I can uh, see why I can see why. And it's, I don't think it's a major problem in this story, but I think it would have been a better story if it had been tidied up in that respect. It may be that it's not a major problem in this story because writing with Malcolm Hulk, he had someone there who could shape the story better and who 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 had the skill to construct the story in a in a way that made more sense and to at least try and um gloss over or or to or to 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 move the story past those inconsistencies um was this his first i think it is i think i think it's the first that i'm aware of um yep it's his first same, doctor who at the same time he's 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 written a number of other tvs by this point because for sure He's written Avengers a few years before this. 
the the article I saw said not only had was Ellis had never produced a Doctor Who story, and that his had been rejected for being too complex, but that he teamed up with Malcolm Hulk, who had also had his stories for Doctor Who rejected, although I didn't say why, had some stories, and that's why they teamed up to to do this thing. So they were both untested waters here for them in Doctor Who land, but obviously had some sure. interest. But sure. um, but 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 Hulk Hulk was working on on uh, Avengers stories when Honor Blackman was in the show. So this is uh, this is nineteen sixty seven. So he was he was writing television three four five years before this. So he's, he's not saying he was inexperienced. In yeah, just in, inexperienced as a Doctor Who writer. Right? There is a sure and yes, it's a it's a pretty unique show yeah um another unique thing about doctor who uh particularly doctor who in this era was uh, apparently the way they handled their contracts for their actors this is uh ben and polly's final story and they're in parts one and two and then they're really not they, they appear in a film sequence at the end of part six to say goodbye but they've, they've almost done a dodo here, <laughs> which was almost exactly a year prior to this. So, um, you know, the, my understanding, and again, there are, I'm sure, people who know better, but from the, the limited resource uh, research that I, that I have access to, you know, Michael Cray's contract was up. So was Annika Will's contract was up and they didn't want Michael Cray's back. They offered it to Annika to come continue, but she opted not to. And apparently their contracts ran out before you get to the end of a story. <laughs> which I find, which is what I guess happened with Dodo as well. So it, it it's just weird. It's It's really odd that not only do they disappear, but they don't, they don't get to go out well. No, I think it's a huge it's a huge disservice to their characters. I like I like Ben and Polly. I think I think they deserved I don't necessarily like their departure. The actual I think we've talked about this before and the fact that it's very difficult to come up with a satisfying way of having someone leave the TARDIS. And yeah. you know, right from right from the beginning from the way Susan left. I mean, I I like the way Susan left, but I don't think you can do that again because, well, apart from anything else, you've now got a doctor who is uh, not quite as, how should we put it? His his people skills are not quite as eccentric. Um, no, eccentric's not right. He is quite eccentric bad. still, think, but yeah. <laughs> just bad. Just bad. Yeah, just bad. Um, that's fair. There. That's fair. The The... The way in which Ben and Polly leave is, it, it it's it's a little bit like, I guess, um, Ian and Barbara wanting to get back to their normal life. But I quite like the way in which they just sort of notice that they are back where they started, and that because the Doctor is not necessarily terribly reliable as a pilot of the TARDIS, that if they don't take this opportunity to pick up their lives in this time and place they they that might be it That's so right. 
I didn't dislike that. What I what I didn't like was the fact that they that they have a final story in which, as you say, they just disappear for. And as far as as far as the story is concerned, they are actually stuck in one of those wardrobes for four episodes. Uh huh. It, it's a it's a terrible it's a terrible exit. It's for it's them. not a heroic climax, really, is it? No, and and you know I. Yes, they recognize that they haven't left or they haven't been gone. And I, I off the top of my head, can't say, but I can't think of any other Ben and Polly stories set in modern Earth. So apart from the war machines. And so this is the first time they've been back home. It's not like now we're, you know, clock chopping and changing every week. We just bring you back seconds yeah. after you left. You know, it was a it was a magical mystery tour. And if this is their first return, I'm fine with that. Um, especially in a way, especially since they did just spend uh, four episodes in a box thinking perhaps that this is the it. This is it. This is the end. You know, this is maybe it is too dangerous to be traveling. But none of that is played up in that farewell scene. No, It's no, just sort no... of, oh, wait, it's today. Oh, well, I, I think, yeah, I think we'll just. Go then. Bye. Take care. Off. And then, of course, we have to get one last. We have to get one last condescending uh, bit of sexism on on Polly. There. Well, you know, Ben, you go off and be an admiral, and Polly, you take care of Ben. <sighs> <laughs> and don't yeah. forget, he likes his coffee black. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just a terrible ending. It's for them. <laughs> I suppose the converse of that is, what do we think of Samantha Briggs? It's like, and then we have a companion that feels to be in every way, shape or form, the replacement, and then isn't. Which she was, of course. Yeah. And I, I had no idea that Pauline Collins was in Doctor Who. So this was, this was quite a surprise. I hadn't known... She'd done one. I hadn't known that she had been considered as a companion, even. So that that was that was quite exciting. Plus, you get all of this kind of flirting going on, which feels a bit unusual. Well, I yeah. mean, maybe not these days, but sex in Doctor Who in nineteen sixty-seven was a bit less common. I I have a I have a I have a note right from her first. She she hugs Jamie, and then of course. Later on, there's there's even more suggestions and a and a little bit of kissing. So, mm. yeah, it, it's it, it's different. And it it is an odd. I can't think of another example, and I know there is one, but there have been episodes or stories of Doctor Who where they've brought people in and they've decided to either make them a companion or they're 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 effectively auditioning them because they have Keeper of Charkin. Was it Keeper of Trial? No, no, it's one of the earlier ones. So they actually have time because the shows air out over several weeks. They have time oh, sure. to judge how the people like them. So they can actually make the decision as they come closer to the end of the serial and go, well, do you want to keep going? And I know the there chase? was one. Oh, no, I can't think of who it is. Uh, I thought I thought that happened in The Chase, but I may be wrong. It might be. Um, it was Peter Purvis. It is but one of the I, earlier ones, but... I don't know for sure. I mean, going the other way, in terms of what this one is like to something like Delta and the Bannermen, in the sense of you have you have a potential 
companion here, although I think it was Pauline Collins' decision not to not to carry on. But it, I, it did make me wonder what... Because I have to say, I I quite liked Sam Briggs. Um, I mean, I... I like Pauline Collins. I I liked uh, the the the. I, I haven't actually, or well, I don't remember seeing Shirley Valentine, but I, I liked the Woodhouse Playhouse series that she did with John Alderton. She's a good comedy actress, and I liked her character in this, and I liked the interaction that she was having with Jamie. But a bit of me did wonder how would that have worked if she had then gone off in the TARDIS and how would Jamie have reacted to her because we didn't get that much of a sense of how much her interest was reciprocated so would it have been sort of would it have been Sam chasing Jamie down the corridors of the TARDIS or would we have had an actual romance blossoming in the console room or would something have had to quash it so that we could kind of get on with business as usual for the Doctor's companions I could kind of see the idea of putting Jamie in opposition to a modern girl, which is the, mm. I mean, yes, we had Polly here, but it really wasn't that. Well, not only that, a scouser. Um, that dynamic. So, and then they go with Victoria instead, which is a little more Victorian. <laughs> if you yeah, will. no, you're going with a scouser from the swinging 60s. It's It's perfect yeah. as a counterpoint to... To, to kind of Jamie's 18th century uh, yes. Scots boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think they could have made it work. I think they would have probably, you know, never gone beyond what we see here. Cause I think they, they you know, they would have had to stall it, but I, it was, she was a good character. I didn't, I didn't dislike the character and you really could feel, I mean, I knew Ben and Polly were leaving. I I don't remember much about the faceless ones. I, I'm sure I, I'm, if I have the book, I must. If they had a Target novelization, I certainly had it and I read it. But 1980, you know, four or whatever, and I don't remember anything about it because I I don't do the I don't do the telesnaps recreations and I don't do the audio stories. So coming at this thing really really cold, except that I knew Ben and Polly left. In this story, I did not know how badly they left or, you know, it was it was obvious something was wrong about episode three. And by episode four, I'm like, did they dodo her? <laughs> I can't believe they dodoed her. <laughs> it's like, are we never going to see them again? Are they dead? No, they can't be dead. We know Adric is is, you know, the next to die. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> Well, <laughs> haven't we talked about that already on the show? But yeah. Um, so when Samantha came in and I mean, immediately when she started talking to Polly at the desk and Jamie's listening, I'm like, that's got to be auditioning for the new companion right there. It's got to be. It, it was it was so obvious. And uh, but I'm going, but I, I'm pretty darn sure there is not a Samantha as a companion because it's Victoria next. And huh, weird. That, that all that was kind of kind of strange. I, I'm I'm guessing that the story was written for Ben and Polly through and through and had tailored to remove them from the table. But 
I couldn't quite work. I mean, obviously, poly stuff's easy to work out. You just give it to Samantha and go. But I don't know what Ben would do. And maybe that's part of the problem. What would Ben do? Nothing. Well, no, Samantha Samantha has is a character in the story because there has to be someone with a missing brother. Yeah, but they could have... So it's not as simple as that. It's not quite as simple it as that. It would have gone they, through they a number of rewrites, yeah. I think. Well, but she could have been there and then, you know, all the things that she tries to do basically could have been more stuff that was supposed to be driven by Polly. But yeah, I I, I would love to see the first first version of that script because I find it hard to believe that they'd say, oh, and write Ben, or yeah, write Ben and Polly out by the end of episode two and give them some lame tag scene at the end. I, I find it hard to believe that would be. And if they had done that, I find it hard to believe they would have done it this badly. I, well, they did do it at some point, and they did do it this badly. Yeah. But if they're retrofitting a story that was already done, then I could see how you might just kind of, yeah, all right, fine. Get it. It, it, it's not good. I tell you why I like, I'll tell you why I like the story. I mean, apart from it being set in 1967 itself, it's, it's also, I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a fun location to play with it and in the airport um mm. i mean and i mean the the story itself then goes up into the the space station which is a nice little change of scene by the time you get into what's that episode four and i thought that the stuff set in air traffic control was done very nicely i thought it was there was a kind of convincingly authentic patter going on there i've no idea whether it was authentic i've never worked in air traffic control and i've no idea whether either the writers um would uh, would have known that but it was done with sufficient detail and the 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 dialogue that was going on in the background felt like genuine you know genuine air traffic chatter Mm mm-hmm I also I really liked the the various characters that we got introduced to through this. So the the um the commandant in the airport is is a key character. His what is she? His PA, I guess. Uh, yeah, secretary probably at that time, but yeah. Um play and another surprise for me because I thought Wonder Ventham only had been in two Doctor Who stories. I thought she'd she was in um, Image of the Fendal and Time and the Rani. But I didn't realize she'd been in something this far back. I want to stop you there for just one second, because there is something that I want to say about this. I knew that was Wanda Ventum. Not, not because I knew she was in this story, but the second she came up on screen, I'm like, that has got to be Wanda Ventum. The... I'm there may be I have some problems with the animation with this, but I could identify many of those actors from their faces. Yes. Character actors that I've seen in many British shows uh, of the period. And that part, bang on. I was like, is it could that really be Wanda Ventum? It must be. And it was. So they they did really well on that. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I mean that that kind of makes the partly kind of makes the point. It's it's a it's a it's a good cast of recognizable and diverse characters. 
you know, um, Crossland's an interesting, entertaining character. Um, Blade, Donald Pickering, he, it's a, it's a, it's a nice performance. Point taken, he's not the smartest alien in the cookie jar, but <laughs> there's still a kind of he brings a sinister air to it, and he wears his pilot's uniform in a very kind of convincing way. I just I liked the ensemble that they put together. I liked the setting. I liked the 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 general general feel of the episode. Hmm. Yeah, I and I, I, and I liked the fact it was Gatwick Airport, which explained why Tegan wasn't there because she <laughs> well, went to Heathrow. Also, she wasn't born yet, practically. Yeah, there was that too. It, I have to say, I didn't I didn't recognise it as Gatwick. I'd flown from Gatwick more than any other airport and. It's changed quite a bit since 1967, but that's fair enough. <laughs> I was going to say Gatwick is the only British airport I've ever been in, uh, and I didn't recognize it either. So, but you've been in one airport; they all have kind of the same bits to them. Oh, there, there is one other thing. While we're talking about the the story rather than the uh, the animated realization of it, which which was the behavior of the Doctor, which I picked up a couple of times in this. And I don't know whether it stood out for you, but the Doctor uses the weapon that he he pickpockets. Mm-hmm. The kind of whatever it is, weapon. Stun gun or whatever. Does it turn? Yeah. Does it turn people to ice? Does it freeze them? Oh, <laughs> Good does it, question. I mean, it freezes them in the sense of it. It uh, froze the coffee. I was going to say it, it's removes their animation. <laughs> That's not quite the appropriate thing to say <laughs> when you've got an animated story. It stops them from moving it makes them mm-hmm. stationary and their their whole body becomes paralyzed i guess um that but it could be freezing in the sense of turning to ice because it did freeze the coffee we don't quite know exactly what it does they Again, also try that on the doctor in the room with the freezing it, gas so yeah, there might be it, some well indeed and and so from the point of view of the audience again i'd say that's something where you want a bit a bit less complexity and a bit more consistency but in particular i think that's important from a story point of view because that instance at the beginning of of uh, episode 3 where the doctor then uses the weapon on someone else and it's not clear not only do we not really know what the weapon does but much more importantly it's not clear whether the doctor knows what the weapon does because if he doesn't know what it does it could kill them or or do some permanent damage to them and he's just using it anyway i okay i'll 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 take that point i saw that device as i'm gonna go with medical sure well obviously it is it is it is an immobile immobilizer but i thought it was demonstrated and i can't remember that it was demonstrated that it was only a temporary paralysis somewhere along the line before the doctor well, used it but i i, I, I hadn't yeah. i hadn't clocked that i i de- i definitely at the point he used it i thought and I, and it may well have been medical but i mean this point still stands you can use medical yeah. devices in ways that are completely lethal so You've still got to you've still got to know what you're doing and use them in an appropriate way. The and doctor certainly threatened the point, to murder people in this episode. Well, I would. Well, not only that, he does. He liquefies the the fake nurse. Oh uh, no, he didn't liquefy the nurse. Meadows did. He threatens to liquefy the he fake threatens. nurse. Yes, 
Yes, he does. And and Meadows, yeah. And the the guys of another thing, but it's it is Meadows that actually pulled the thing off. But yes, he is I can't, using I can't the threat remember. of so Med- Meadows does that independently, I think. Trying to remember the sequence now. Meadows does that independently without that without knowing that the doctor has threatened it. But had he known what the doctor was doing, he would have taken his cue from the doctor. And so, as you say, um the doc the doctor is is threatening to murder people in this and potentially therefore responsible for their murder. Yeah. Well, in Meadows' case, so the nurse came in holding a gun and Meadows was standing next to the nurse's animated or suspended human body. And Mm. when she said, you traitor, he yanked it off of the human. So you could argue it was self-defense. But yeah, the doctor definitely was using the threat of, of, of murder. On, on it, which is out of character. Well, he he certainly he certainly, I mean, forget the nurse, the guy in air traffic control, the one who they essentially take hostage. Mm-hmm. The, the doctor is definitely threatening to kill him. Yeah, he was he was threatening to kill him. There's no no doubt about that. So yeah, he, he, I think your I think your point is right. The doctor's behavior is a little different in in this. Um, two new writers to Doctor Who. And I, I didn't think he was particularly whimsical either, that there wasn't a lot of the Troughton whimsy in this story. He's pretty serious. That's true. Yeah. Although, I mean, Troughton's, Troughton's performance is has has the whimsy, but I, I mean, he's finding it himself rather than taking it from the script, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, if, uh, my first question about the animation... What do you think about the fact that some of these episodes exist, but we've just basically said, yeah, don't bother. Let's just do them all. Well, that's the, that's the way now, isn't it? I mean, this isn't the first story where they've done that. Is this the first story where they've done that? Did they have some macro terror? I don't remember. Now you're making me wonder. I thought we had already had it. And so what we've had so far, so the, the first story that reanimated... Uh, a full six episode serial was Power of the Daleks and yeah. that had no surviving episodes so that had to be completely recreated and that was a, a big breakthrough that they managed to do the whole serial and that was a great success. The second one that they animated, that that was when they then went off and did Sharda, didn't they, which was a bit of a, a strange hybrid yeah. beast. They then did the Macra Terror, yes? Yes, the Macro Terror the was one. was completely missing. So this is the first one, yeah. where there have been surviving episodes. So that's interesting. Yes, I I hadn't registered that. I'd just taken it as being normal. But I guess that's because when they announced the Faceless Ones, they said this is what we're going to do, and we all went, oh yes, that is that is what you do now because part of the kind of selling point of these of the second round if you like of animations has been the fact that they are doing complete serials and they've been animating them with color versions widescreen versions so in a sense it's bringing it up to modern standards mm-hmm. and if you stick the original episodes where they survive in there it sticks out that they are oh four three black and white and you know a bit grainy and the sets are a bit wobbly and all the rest of it yeah i I don't i mean i don't have any uh, the fact that the discs contain the original episodes if you want to watch them 
I think that's fine. I, I think watching through it. Okay, that's that's interesting because it sounds like you're saying you didn't watch them with the original episodes. You did oh, just didn't. watch the animation. I did just watch the. I did just watch the color animation. I will go so far as to say that. Uh, I, oh goodness me! For the for the purposes of saying what did this really look like, I might go watch the episodes the black and white ep or the, the the original episodes i'm unlikely to ever watch the black and white animation because if you are going to bring them up to technical specifications and if you are going to make them widescreen and if you are going to completely recreate them and redesign you know the staging and the characters and everything why then the artifice of pretending like it's there's some value to it being black and white when that is not well, how the animation was made or envisioned so well, that, well, no, that's now that's interesting because power. So I, I see, I see there being a great deal, even even though actually this serial is directed by Anne Marie Walsh, and I think that Macro Terror and Power of the Daleks were both directed by Charles Norton. They're basically done by the same animators. Uh, I think Anne Marie Walsh was involved as an animator on the others, and so there is a there is a kind of through line to these and if we look back at power of the daleks power of the daleks was envisioned as being a black and white animation mm -hmm. when we watched it for the podcast we watched both of us watched the black and white version of it the color version was provided on the discs and that was an afterthought by the animators by the time they did macro terror they were as you say animating it in color widescreen and the rest of it and they provided a black and white version for, well, purists. I don't know. <laughs> they they provided a black and white version, but the black and white version in, in on Macroterra was in widescreen. So I guess that was, you know, it it was easy for them to do, and they knew some people would want to watch it in black and white because of black and white story. Fair enough. I watched it in black and white on the Macroterra, but I watched it in color as well. And uh, as it happened, I also watched the recons. I just wanted to see what all of the different versions felt like. For the faceless ones, it felt to me that the way this was presented on the discs, and I guess this is completely subjective, was that they had switched, in a sense, to acknowledging the fact that the main presentation would be the original episodes with black and white animation filling in, they'd gone back to 4.3 so that there was some more consistency between them. And that was the first thing. In fact, that was the main thing that I watched. I watched it through with the surviving episodes and the 4.3 black and white animation as presented on disc one. And then I dipped into the others just to see what they were like. But my choice of what to watch was to watch something that was closer to the original. Mm. And I and I and I think the fact that they do that, the fact that they give you episodes one and three on the black and white disc is an indication that they expect people to do that because they've got episodes one and three twice in this box. They do present them along with the recons, which is kind of where you'd expect them to be. I mean, you're not going to do recons for episode one and three. So right. when you get to the recon disc, obviously you've got the original episodes there and recons in between. And that's that's how you watch this serial. With the, the, the black and white animation disc, you've got 
episodes one and three on there so that you can watch it all through with the black and white animations in between but obviously as you also have animated one and three you have you have the choice i couldn't help thinking that what i was doing was the normal thing but clearly that's that's me just being completely egotistical because it you have done something completely different and so even out of this small sample of two there's, uh, <laughs> well there's still okay no consistency okay so two things one you've seen the making of the faceless ones on the disc it's clear they're doing it in color oh yes no but macro yeah. was made in color and this was yeah. made in color they were both and... they were they that was that was a switch from power of the daleks and obviously shada was made in color but it stayed in color and that here's was a my switch opportunity from power of the daleks to to rag on some marketing decisions um faceless ones was released on dvd and blu-ray in the united kingdom and six months or more later released on dvd only in the united states i bought the blu-rays from the united kingdom and when you buy blu-rays from overseas you don't get to stick them in a dvd player you have to rip them well, there are ways to get around that too, but I didn't care. They go right into the drive and they get ripped. So what I have is the episodes. I don't know how they're presented. I have no clue what it looks like. Fair enough. <laughs> right? I just know that the discs get ripped and it's like, here are the black and white ones. Here are the color ones. Here's the reconstructions. Here are the episodes. Okay. I'll watch the color ones. <laughs> like, you must that... have noticed which files came off which discs, or maybe you didn't. Yes. I. Well, that, That's the way they came yes um but to be fair let's see no because i think i opened the three disc set i looked at disc two i looked at disc one it says black and white animations disc two says color animations pulled out disc two put it in drive started from there so it's literally the label on the disc is what got me there and i have not actually ripped the others yet Oh, okay. So you don't, in that case, you don't know what's on the disc. So I don't know um, for sure. Well, I do because I know it was on your discs, but I, because you told me. But, it, but yes, yes. yes. But that, 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 that seems to, that's, so that seems to me the presentation. I don't, I absolutely agree with you. I don't think there is any question that it was animated in color, down to the fact that when you watch the credits on the black and white version, Adrian Salmon is still credited in the animation credits and he, he was the the whatever you call it you know the the color engineer for for these mm -hmm. so i i mean i i guess maybe he does some work when they are converting the color versions into the black and white versions but it's it's not a credit you would have if you'd animated it there in black and white in the first place well didn't uh, I could be confusing this somewhere else, but didn't I, I definitely saw it. It might be on one of the other animations. So I'm just going to say that right now. I might be, this is a, a minor technical, minor technical spoiler that when they're converting to black and white, the color engineer adds a tint of blue to it to give it a more black and white feel. <laughs> it might be Fury from the Deep that I saw that on, but um, I'll have to, defer but i they do there is some color to the black and white it's just not anyway it, it yeah so i saw color I, I saw color i thought you know if they're gonna do color i might as well enjoy their vision and and i did i mean you know it's like great i love it i love the i love the color i know it's the one they used in macro terror 
I love the color uh, opening titles that look like they said, how would they have done this? Oh, we'll just do it the way they did it with John Pertwee. Or similar. Well, the circles and the, you know, the color overlays to the, to the, uh, the black and white yeah, howl around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, just, I, that's great. I, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, if I had complaints, uh, obviously they're kind of jerky movement, but we, we've seen that they're nowhere near as bad as the ice warriors where it, you know, uh. still look like pin the tail on the donkey arms on some of the characters. I've got to admit, the colour is growing on me. I do think that they have done a really good job with the colour. I, If I had a choice, if I could only have one, I would still go for the black and white. But I was less... I, this this sounds like damning with French praise. I don't really mean it to sound this bad, but I was, I was not as horrified by the colour as I expected to be. <laughs> the colour the color has a... A, it's it has a subtlety and it has an authenticity and there's a there's a kind of there's a nice i mean it was true as well on the macro terror it has a very similar look i thought it was good on the macro terror and i was i was even more convinced by it on this one that it that it has ha, has the it's it's not oversaturated and in some senses it it has this kind of um almost faded look in parts of it and it just works really well it looks gorgeous and it works well so i'm very pleased that we get the different versions that they they have presented us with such a comprehensive package where we get the original episodes we get the black and white animations we get the recons and we get the color episodes yeah i i don't have any complaint with the choice of colors um you know it, it um you know your american television using that as an example when they went to color they really went big on the color, you know, the, it's because they want to show off what you can do with color so they can sell more color TVs. Um, so there was lots of really wild, very colorful shows in that transition period. And then, you know, that's that's calmed down. It's become more realistic. And I think this doesn't this doesn't suffer from them trying to sell the color. This this is they've tried to go relatively realistic and uh there were some pretty wild colors in the 60s in clothing and you do see that on a couple of them but uh no but let's face it this is a 2019 production it is not a 1967 production right and one of the things that i appreciate is that i think i mean this this kind of ties into the controversy about the cuts in the macro terror but i it's the fact that they are now being quite straightforward in presenting this as being a a modern production. And that ties in with the fact that it's in colour, it ties in with the fact that it's in widescreen. It also ties in with the fact that they can do things in restaging the episode that they couldn't have done at the time. And there's there's a bit of an allusion to that on the making of documentary mm. where when they're storyboarding it, they're talking about the fact that they can they can move the camera around a lot more rather than there being a load of static wide shots. There are more close-ups and head and shoulder mid shots. And Which that makes more like the modern more TV. dynamic. Yeah. It's more like modern TV. It's and also it's easier for them to, <laughs> to animate. It's, it's, it's cheaper, but it's, it's, it's certainly nicer to watch as an animation because you don't, their, their issue is they're having to animate all of the 
people in the in the static wide shot who are just doing reactions or whatever mm. and from a viewer's point of view we certainly don't want to see that in an animation but we probably don't necessarily need to say it in live action either so i appreciated the fact that they they did actually take those liberties at the same time there is clearly a sensibility that they want to present something that is to a degree true to the original, original. story because they know that that's that's who people people who are buying it are buying it because what they want is the original story and this is all that they can get yep and a little bit of me it thinks it's a shame that they compromise so much on that when we talked about the reign of terror and the nice anime style that was brought in on that i did feel it was a shame that they weren't allowed to do what they wanted to do which was to be much more stylized in the way that they did it because i felt well you're never going to create something that looks like a live action tv show because you're doing animation and it's not the same thing 10 years from now they'll be they'll be able to do it <laughs> probably well I, I mean they might be able to do it now on a much bigger budget so yeah. some of those sequences in in rogue one for example it's the money it's all it's all down to the money so um maybe we should pick on the things that didn't work well the other thing i will say actually while we while we're praising the the visuals it's not just the color i'd still think all of the drawings in this are superb and you alluded to the fact that they were recognizably character actors you weren't you you hadn't watched the surviving episode so you were actually literally recognizing these people based on their drawings yep and and i and i can i recognized uh blade and i i know it's pickering because you said it earlier but i yep. i don't yep. know that i recognized the commandant and i recognized inspector crossland and wanda Venton. i recognize sure. those as actors i've seen in many other things and i go i know who that guy is and i couldn't tell you his name but i know who that guy is now some of the others no but but and may i just may have never seen them before well yes indeed so if you'd watched the the surviving episodes you might not have recognized them but i i mean i think both the fact that the that the guy his name i've forgotten already um has has uh done such a good job in terms of representing actors so that you can recognize them but also just from an aesthetic point of view i find the drawings pleasing to look at so that part of it works well for me the thing and this this is just this is going to be a boring because we're seeing the same animators who did power who did macro is that when they do do long shots, their movements awful. It's just terrible. They've got they've they've got the movement in the face really well. The, I I find all the lip syncing and everything, the kind of expressiveness of the faces, which is the important bit. In fairness, is really slick now. I really yeah. really like it. But bodies don't move like that. But when they say scatter and run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just that you. It, there is also uh, there's also something else, and I don't know how they would change this, but there are a couple times where the doctor says, "Quickly, come along here," and no one is moving quickly. <laughs> yeah, right. Run, and no one is running quickly. It just does not. 
it, it, it's not moving across the screen at the right rate or whatever it is. It makes it look like they are sauntering as the best I can say. And that's probably the most it, glaring it, part of the animation to me is that when it's clearly just lumbering along when it shouldn't be. Because the, because there's obviously very little rig it, rigging in the kind of below the neck and therefore all they all they can sort of do is move the whole body up and down and it it looks a bit like a trot you know there is no sense of the way the body moves differently when you walk and when you when you dash you know when you're doing a sprint the whole shape of your body changes and the 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 way your limbs move but also you know the relation of your head to your torso and all these kinds of things so it 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 does feel like a real compromise and I don't think that all of the animations that we have seen have necessarily had that fault. In some ways, they have they they are weaker than this animation because, like I say, there are there are a great many strengths to this. I still, I've got to say, I still really like the Cosgrove Hall animation for the invasion way back when. But these are these are pretty good, but that is the real weak point, I think, of them. And because we're now we're now we've had three of these in a row, is making me feel like well maybe it is maybe it is quite a good thing that we're going to go back to another animator for the next one, mm. for Fury from the Deep. It's done by Big fin Big Finish Creative, who did Tenth uh, Planet, and they did Reign of Terror, and they did Moonbase, and. Certainly, Reign and Reign of Terror and Moonbase stick in my mind as being some of the, the the strongest animations of that original first run. So I'm going to be very interested to see what they do and Ooh. how it differs from yeah. the kind of new modern house style. Uh, any picking on this animation is absolutely a not in any way, shape, or form anything other than just like this is the limitation of what of what animation can do in the budget constraints and the time constraints uh of this kind of commercial product is is absolutely not a you shouldn't enjoy this because you will and, and oh yeah oh yes no i i do i do i do I, what i what i think it is is, it, is it's a question of priority it's a question of where you focus those resources mm -hmm. and in a you know in a way i can't really take fault with that i think that they have they've they've gone for the the right things in this and a, and a bit of me did think you know when we when we are going for animating all six episodes of a serial where you've got two surviving episodes you think well hang on a minute you could have spent 50 percent more time animating if you'd just done the ones you needed to do yeah but doing the whole thing is what makes it a saleable product okay i can accept that and also the package that they give us with, as I say, all the different versions, including the the animated versions for the ones that do survive, is really, really comprehensive. So it's very hard to to find fault with that. And I'm very glad to think that the the you know, the same same more or less the same team of animators will, hopefully, touch wood, be as we speak, working on some other Evil of the Daleks reconstruction for us to enjoy. It would be surprising if it wasn't, but you <laughs> never know. I mean, please, people. It's like, there's only that little gap now between in that particular stretch. But anyway, um, let's see. 
Did you spot the little uh, Easter eggs? I'm sure there's at least two of them that you must have seen in the animation. I saw the wanted posters. Okay. So there was the master. What was, did you see who the other guy below him was? He was the master. Was it the other version of the master? It was, it was um, Delgado and Duan, I think. Was that who that was? I did not, was not able to. Well, I was not able to determine that second one, but I saw the master ones. The Magpie Electricals in the terminal. Ah, ah, okay. The one that cracked me up the most was, and it's kind of funny because, you know, there's a scene where the doctor's holding the newspaper and Jamie's holding the newspaper upside down because he can't read, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, So that's like the day's paper, but there's a completely different paper on the commandant's desk. And do you know what the headline on it on I'm guessing the paper is? War Machines no. Defeated. Huh. Oh, because it's set at the same time. Of course it's, it's yes. Yeah, right. It's yeah, it's beautiful. It's like news. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's pretty good. And it, it does actually help sell that the story is like the next day, or you know, within a week of of uh Ben and Polly leaving. So I think Oh, and there was a guy wearing a prisoner outfit on the plane. He was wearing the black prisoner kit with the piping that number six wears. Oh, I see. You mean prisoner. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. spot that either. Yeah, he's he's one of the guys, I think, on the plane when Crossland gets captured. Not the one that Jamie's on. But although actually, who knows? Maybe it's all the same passengers. Save a little money. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I spotted those. I don't think I saw any others while we're talking about the 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 presentation one of the things that i have a have a, have a i can't help not comment on it and it is it is a, it, it sounds like a slightly critical comment but actually i am we've talked about the fact that they haven't given us something like this in the past and now they have given us a making of the animation part of the story and i i am so pleased to have it because i find the whole reconstruction side of it fascinating mm -hmm. the value-added material i hate that phrase but all right it's what they call it that they put on 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 the doctor who documentaries have extremely high production values the documentary on the, on this animation has quite odd camera work as if it's sort of been shot on a mobile device or something there are there are wobbles to it. The focus keeps pulling. The some of the things, the exposure changes quite wildly. Mm. There's there's a shot where a hand comes in and grabs a cup of tea, and obviously yeah, whoever's I, I saw shooting that. it doesn't notice it. There's another one where someone's baby wanders into shot, and that doesn't seem to be noticed. And I was just, I'm commenting on it just because I was really surprised by it. But I didn't feel by the time I'd watched the thing that it had any in any way detracted from. I mean, that's twenty twenty itis. All... It's like if if no, feel it's like... not. Well, I know it wasn't filmed in twenty twenty, but in other words, it's it's perspective well, from twenty twenty of watching. Oh, I've been just watching people in their houses. So yeah, hand comes in with a tea and whatnot. Well, it, but it, what it felt like was that it had been shot by people's partners because you couldn't send the camera crew round. Yeah, it did feel like that. And obviously. It wasn't that. It was presumably, it may have been shot by people's partners, but if it was, it was because you couldn't afford to send a camera crew because, as it explains in the documentary, these animators are working all over the world. And yep. 
So for some, you, it's not like someone could just pop round and interview them. So that you know that that kind of makes sense. That fact on its own is fascinating. The documentary itself is fascinating. It's extremely entertainingly edited. It's got a very kind of um, compelling narrative that takes you through the whole thing f- from. Uh, conception through the drawings the storyboarding and the actual animation itself it was really 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 good and so i'm just pleased that we have now got some kind of an insight into the animation process and long may that continue well i I will say this though um because you know we we have picked on some of the animation choices here in our in our review i certainly you know again so much better than the animation in Ice Warriors. That's the one that really bugs me with the elbows, oh, yeah. reading in the elbows. It's just terrible. But it's awful. Um, but I'm still happy to have it and not remotely uh, mad at them. But you know, when I when I watch that and I think, oh yeah, this is kind of awkward and that's kind of stuff. And then when you watch the guy sitting there at his work talking about how he does it and how much fun it is, even though it's hard work and this, this, this I, I feel bad. I genuinely feel bad at picking on his animation. It's like, oh God, he's just, you know, I mean, he's doing his best. We should, I guess, you know, it personalizes it. And and when we're looking at the big, nasty BBC corporate money-grubbing machine making it, and you look at it and you go, well, I think they could have done better. But when you're looking at some guy sitting at his desk and he's the only animator and he's clunking away on the, the computer in a tight deadline and and he obviously is, you know, truly invested in love in the project i'm a lot more forgiving and i feel bad about not being as forgiving when i was watching but uh so yeah no i i i enjoyed the documentary and i i did really enjoy getting some insight on how they're doing it because it helps it helps understand the choices they made i got no more me neither all right well in that case um one of these days We'll be looking at Fury from the Deep because that is also out. Uh, you know, it's out in the United Kingdom as we're doing this. It's it's on a six <laughs> month or more delay for the United States, and again, only coming out on DVD. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like if you're gonna make those kind of marketing decisions, you gotta expect the consequences of the people who uh, are fans who actually want the product when it's available. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the Beast episode, Dummy. Please come join me, Eugene. And me, Simon as we talk about meta-horror in Nigel Neal's pop at Rubber Monsters, and we discuss Chekhov's articulated steel hands. All that is next time on Fusion Patrol. Come join the conversation.